We are in the midst of a series where we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, um, which is one of the, the oldest creeds of the early church. In the first few centuries after the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the, the church developed a number of creeds. Uh, if, you, if you've gone to a uh, number of high churches, whether it be Presbyterian, uh, I don't know that they really deal with the, the Nicene Creed, but definitely if you were raised Roman Catholic or uh, Episcopalian or Anglican, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, there's uh, uh, Chalcedonian Creed, there's all these creeds that, that, that the early church um, kind of formed to put some legs on what faith meant to, the, to those early Christians. Right? These are essentially statements of faith a series of propositional truths that were affirmed and governed when it meant to follow Jesus Christ. Last week, I mentioned the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest of those creeds, was originally called the rule of faith. And I used the illustration of a ruler, right? Uh, A ruler which has a fixed set of dimensions that can be used to measure an object or to measure a length. An inch is an inch regardless of which ruler you're using and who's using it. Although I suppose if we're anywhere other than the U.S., they're they're measuring in centimeters, but you get the point, right? Much like a ruler, the Apostles' Creed provided an established metric for faith, a way to kind of measure faith. The opening clause of the creed is, we believe. And then everything that follows are the things that we affirm to be true in the life of faith. And remember, just I'm, 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 I know I'm kind of summarizing for those of you that were here last week, but I, these are some of the, the foundational principles that we're going to be looking at over the next few months. Right? Belief is not just a mental exercise. It's not just something you think about, but it evokes this idea of faith or trust. Right? Doing something with that knowledge. And so the purpose of this faith is not just to increase our knowledge of God but to affirm these truths in an avenue that yields dividends in our lives. I just listened to a podcast that, uh, I guess yesterday it would have been, Saturday, uh, that that Francis Chan was featured on, and he talked about this. He talked about in his life how, you know, he won all kinds of Bible, he knew the Bible in and out. He won all kinds of Bible trivia contests, but he didn't know it. He didn't get it. And that's what I'm encouraging us to do, is not just intellectually you know, cognitively or mentally understand these things, but living it out in various ways. One of the things that I thought it might be nice for us to do is to actually recite the Apostles' Creed each week. Now, I know we're, we're, as a church, like, some of us might be like, well, it's a little, little much for me. You're asking me to actually talk corporately. Because we don't, we don't do a lot of this here at City Reach, a lot of this, you know, corporate proclamation or call and response. But in light of this, You know, this being a very basic rule of faith understanding, I thought it might be nice for us each week to add the clause. And we can kind of, at least once a week, be adding to that so that we can affirm these things and remember, you know, know what it is that we believe. And so I'm going to put it on the screen. Let's see. Get it up here. Just, it'll just be this first one. So if you want to join with me with the first line, friends, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Great. Next week, we'll, uh, we'll add affirmations about Jesus. And by the end of the series, we'll have, so that was a real short one. Each week, it'll get a little longer. We can recite the entirety of it. So let's break down the statement. In fact, let me put it back up here so you guys can take a look at it um, in case you, you want to look at it. 
there are four descriptors that I want us to look at this morning. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on application at the end. First is I want us to look at what it means. We looked at what belief was last week, but who is it that we believe in? Who is this God that we say that we place our faith in? Secondly, we'll look at the, spe- the specific person of the Trinity, namely the Father. Right? What does it mean that God is listed as a Father in the Creed? We'll look at the, the descriptor, the characteristic of, of God being almighty. And finally, God being described as the creator. And so let's begin by looking at who this God is that we express our belief in. Now, the God we profess faith in as Christians exists in what has been called the Trinity. The Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, depending on if you were raised in the church a number of decades ago. As we go through the creed, you'll notice that we profess faith in the Father with the descriptors that we're going to look at this morning that are there on the screen. And then there'll be a section where we talk about our belief in the Son, which describes his life and death and resurrection. And finally, there's a section where we profess belief in the Holy Spirit, which also includes statements about redemption and and, and the, the nature of the church. Right? The earliest Christians affirmed and equated these three perspectives for lack of a better word, three persons of God in their creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, Trinity is not a word that you're ever actually going to find in the Bible itself. It was, the the word was coined by a guy named Tertullian in, uh, he lived somewhere between the second and third centuries. But just because that the word Trinity, to describe God, was just, you know, came a couple of centuries after the time of Jesus, uh, Don't let that fool you, right? Because scripture is inherently Trinitarian. God is somehow, mysteriously, and simultaneously three and one. The Shema, I mentioned it last week, right? That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's an expression, kind of a full-bodied expression of affirmation and love in God. But the beginning of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. One of the defining characteristics of the Hebrew people in the ancient world that set them apart from their neighbors was that they were monotheistic. Mono meaning one. They believed in one God. Their neighbors worshipped all kinds of different gods, right? They might have had a god of the sun and the god of, or the goddess of the harvest or the sea. But for Israel, there was only one being worthy of worship. But at the same time, Jesus, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are described with divine status throughout the New Testament. Right? You have Thomas following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, bowing down before, the, before him. This is in John 20, and he says, well, you know, this is after he's felt the, the nail holes uh, t- you know, in, his, in his hands and sides. And he says, my Lord, he falls down to worship and says, my Lord and my God. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. And one of the commands that he gives them is to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? He doesn't say baptize in the names of, plural, but the name of, singular. Right? There is only one name that we are saved by, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the early church had this dilemma. 
did they follow tritheism, right, which is the, the belief in tri being three, think tricycle with three wheels, tritheism, the worship of three separate gods, right, they, they recognized they weren't tritheistic, but they also weren't Unitarian. Unitarian is this idea of one God, they reject the Trinity, one God uh, that's very kind of static in that way, no, no, none of the distinctiveness of the Trinity. They were staunchly monotheistic, but recognized that there was diversity even in the person and being of God. So the term Trinity, it's a really, you know, it's a really confusing um, concept for us because we like to engage things, you know, with science. We don't understand how something can be both three and one at the same time. But we, we have some examples in science, right? Think about like light. Is light a wave or is it a particle? Yes. Again, sorry, the chemical engineering of me coming out again. Uh, if you want, there's a, there's a really great video. Oh, I should have I figured out what it was that you should watch. Um, maybe Google something like St. Patrick and the Trinity. And it's, the, it's these like two, um, these two uh, um, uh, Irish individuals that St. Patrick is trying to describe the Trinity. And he keeps using like, it's like a, a candle, you know, candle and wick and fire and smoke. Uh, it's like a three-leaf clover. It's like an ice cube, right? Because ice can be, or water can be ice and water and steam anyway. And they keep telling him why he's a heretic. It's pretty funny in this, if you like that kind of theological humor. Anyway, let me get back to what I was saying. Uh, so the term Trinity, what it means is it describes one being comprised of three persons. And all three persons are co-eternal. They all have equal power. They're all made with the same substance. Right? each with their particular roles in redemption. So in the words of a commentator, put it this way, right? The Father plans, the Son procures, and the Spirit applies. So again, I know that's a pretty heady concept. If you have questions about that, I'd love to chat with you about it. But I would say there's more to worship of God if we say we believe in God, because our English term God is a generic word. It could describe the God that we sang about this morning, but we also might say that, you know, that, that the Hindu religion worships 330 million gods. Clearly, we're not speaking about the same thing if we're comparing those two. Clearly, we have something different in mind. And in, in a similar way, the Hebrew word for God is a very generic one. It's Elohim, you might have heard it, or just El. It was used of many of the surrounding deities as well. So, you know, the... the um, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, worshipped El, or Elohim. But Elohim could have described some of the Babylonian gods and goddesses, or, and some of the Sumerian, and some of the other people around that area. But in Exodus 3.13, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he gave his name. Right? You could think maybe God is a title, but in Exodus 3, he gives his name. The name he gives is Yahweh. Based off the, the Latin translation of that, you might be more familiar with the term Jehovah. Now, we, we don't exactly know how to pronounce it because the, 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 in Hebrew, the vowels weren't written. It was just the consonants that were written. But in essence, what it translates to is, I am who I am. Or you could say, I will be what I will be. Even in this name, right? Even in this name, it's not a title, even this name of Yahweh. Right, the personalized name in Hebrew. God depicts his character of self-sustenance. Right? He exists in whatever manner he desires because 
he is able to do so. Keep that in mind when we return to the characteristics of him being almighty. And just a brief aside, right? If you read, because we'll get to Genesis 1 and 2, we're not going to look at them very closely. But there are some critics who say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 are two different creation stories. They look completely different from one another. But if you understand the Hebrew language that's being used in Genesis 1, it uses the title God, Elohim, this generic title for God, as it describes the formation of the cosmos. But in Genesis 2, when God is much more intimate, right, when he, he doesn't just speak and it comes into being, but he actually forms, right, kind of, you know, makes Adam and Eve out of the dust, the, type, the name that is used for God there is Yahweh, right, his personal intimate name. So just food for thought there. The last element that, um, of this, this idea of God that I think is worth mentioning is that, you know, when we consider God as an infinite being, he can look and feel distant from us, right? Like, we can't hold a candle to his power or grandeur. I, I don't know about you, but I haven't, like, created any stars recently. Um, like, it's easy to equate his infiniteness with this stoic perspective, kind of like, you know, that he's emotionally distant from us. But listen to how God describes himself in Exodus 34, 6-7. He says he is a God, merciful. And remember, this is the Old Testament, which a lot of people say is just filled with God's wrath. There's some of that in there. But, but look at his affection here in Exodus 34. He is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness for generations. So God not only describes himself in terms of this like raw power and strength, but he also showcases his moral character. Right? That mighty God is near to us and expresses his affection towards us. And I think that affection is seen, as we see in the creed, with the title that God carries, in particular the person of the Trinity, of the Father. In the creed, the Father, the, his fatherhood, is displayed in two different ways. First, implicit in the context as we look at, right? Because the next line is, uh, we believe in his only son, our Lord, right? So it, it, it's, God is described as a father in relationship to the rest of the Trinity, to Jesus Christ. We see Jesus on earth refer to the father as Abba. It's an Aramaic phrase, which means dad, or some might translate it daddy. It's a respectful, but also a very intimate way to address your parent. Now, there was a time in, in late high school and early college that my, my dad and I were not on very good terms. You could probably count on one hand the number of times that we talked to each other in that season. And during that season, when I would talk about him, he, he was, I called him my biological father. A fact, you could tell, I probably, you could probably tell I had a lot of anger in, in me. At, over that. It was a factual descriptor, but one that didn't carry any semblance of sentimentality. Dad, daddy, father, I mean, father, I, I guess I just am contradicting myself, right? Father is, I feel like that more title, descriptor title, whereas dad d d um, points to relationship. Because that, that idea of dad does point to a special relationship. People call me many different names. I get called all kinds of names, depending on what sphere I'm in. To some, you know, many in this room call me Pastor Chris. Others in Swissville call me Councilman Ansel. You know, the girls on my soccer team call me Coach Chris. I once, I once had a guy 
uh, call me a-hole over, uh, he didn't say a-hole, he said the actual word, over and over again in a McDonald's drive-thru, and I uh, thought he was calling my last name. I thought he was yelling, Ansel, Ansel, that's a story for another time. Uh, I'd love to share it because it's, uh, I, I mistook it for my name. So, you know, I, I answer to a lot of different names. Um, but there are only three people on this earth who are able to call me dad. Elizabeth and Austin, who are sitting in the back, and Catherine, who's still at home. Right, my role as a father to them means something different than all the other hats that I wear with other people in the community. Right, God, as a father, as we see in the creed, is first and foremost with his re- reference to his affectionate relationship with Jesus Christ. Right, that relationship between father and son serves as the model, right, the ideal of what parenthood should look like, even in our human spheres. But that relationship also points to the model of God as a father to his redeemed people. And that's the second reason that God is called a father in the creed. Because he is also a father to those of us sinners who he has adopted into his family. I mean, that's the, that's the, the promise that is tied up in, in uh, the opening, kind of the introduction to the Gospel of John. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because of redemption, we have been adopted into the family of God. We were chatting about this concept on Tuesday night at at small group. If you have a biological child, you love that child because they're an expression of you, right? They come from your DNA and they're here as a result of your actions. You love that child because they are your own flesh and blood and are dependent, at times utterly dependent upon you. But you know, with biological kids, like you don't you don't get to choose who you get. I wouldn't have chosen any different with my kids, but you know, those were the ones that I got I got stuck with, right? Sorry, maybe that came out harsher than I meant it to. But you know, like I that that is I I love my kids, but I had no choice in the matter of who they were going to be. When you adopt a child, there's something really special about that bond because you have to choose to bring that child into your family, right? You, you exercise your free will in a more profound way in adoption than you do with your biological child. There's nothing forcing you to bring that child into your home, right? When you decide that you want to adopt and integrate them into your family, it is a powerful message of affection and love for that child. That is what God did for each one of us. He didn't have to bring us into his household. He could have kept us at arm's length as, you know, as orphans, just stuck in the system. We weren't his problem. He could have washed his hands of us. But in his love, he chose to create, I mean, this is what a lot of the New Testament letters, especially read the, the letter to the Ephesians, talks about. He chose a pathway back to him, allowing us, not that we necessarily only go back to him, but in returning to him, we're given new status that we didn't have before, that we are adopted as part of his family. And so the creed affirms this with just the simple title as God the Father. It affirms that he is the father of the Savior, Jesus, but also that he is our own father as well through Christ. Now, what that means, and this is where the rubber really hits the road, at least for me, 
It means that if you are in Christ, God loves you no less than he loves Jesus. Let me say that again. God loves us no less than he loves Jesus. When we come to faith and are adopted into God's family, we are loved with the same love by the Father of the, the, excuse me, we're loved with the love of the Father that is the same love that he has expressed towards Jesus Christ. You know, if an emotionally healthy parent adopts a child, that newcomer into the family has all the rights and privileges of the rest of the family. That child is on equal status with any brothers or sisters who might predate them. That is precisely what God has done for us. He has welcomed us into his family and given us an equal status in his kingdom economics and affection in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I don't know how you feel about that. Like, it, it boggles my mind. Like, I, I, just, I keep coming back to this, that I feel kind of emotionally stunted in my, my understanding of this because I know that God loves me, but it overwhelms me to even consider the fact that God's love for me is equivalent to the love of his son, Jesus Christ. And I think that comes from the fact that my love, how I understand love, is somehow conditional. It's not, it's, I know that I'm a screw-up and Jesus wasn't, so clearly Jesus is going to be the golden child and I'm going to be the black sheep of the family, right? That, that's how I feel because that is, that is how love was communicated to me. I had great parents in that way, so it's not necessarily, I think even the best of parents screw this up from time to time. Kids, I'm sorry for screwing you up, you know. But that, that's, what I, that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God the Father loves us with an unconditional love that defies explanation. Every time we screw up, if, when we are in Christ, God doesn't remember those things. He doesn't hold those things against us. There's no prove it, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. No, God, I love you. Prove it. God, I'm sorry. Prove it. Jesus has already proven it for us. Let's, let's move on to the third scripture. God is almighty. This means that he can do all that he intends. Now, one of the words you may have heard, kind of those churchy words, is omnipotence. It's one of the three omnis that are used. Omnipotence. He is all-powerful. I thought about reading Psalm 135 uh, as our opening, but since I was going to bring it up in the sermon, I went one psalm before, one ser- psalm, psalm 134. But one psalm, excuse me, Psalm 135, clutter my words sometimes, verses 5 through 6 give testimony to this. It says, For that I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods, gods with a lowercase g, ones that aren't real. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deep. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He's capable. God is the Lord. He is the king over creation. Right? He has what, uh, again, one of these churchy words, I, I, I want to introduce them from time to time because I think they're helpful words, but make sure that we define them. He has sovereignty. Sovereignty means that he has authority over it. Right? If you own a parcel of land, you are sovereign over that parcel of land. You have authority over it. In the Psalms, God's sovereignty is a reason for worship. We saw that a moment ago in Psalm 135. 
Right? We can worship God because he has authority, because we can know that he is in control. Even if our lives feel out of control, right? he is in control. I go to this psalm all the time, Psalm 23, because this is the promise in this. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me, right? I might have a friend that is a, a buddy of mine, and if we're walking through some, some tough places, I still might feel evil, or m- might fear evil. Why? Because it's, it, it, my buddy might not have the strength to be the one to bail me out of it. But with God, we don't fear evil because we know that he is in control and that he is powerful enough to provide and protect us in those moments. Now, God is all-powerful, but he has things that he cannot do. What did you say? Does that sound controversial? What I mean by that is he cannot do that which is contradictory to his own nature. Right? Like God is faithful and just. He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. The book of James tells us as much. It says that God, it is impossible for God to tempt anyone. So these boundaries, don't think of them as limits on God. God is not limited by anything outside of himself. He is self-defining, as we saw you know, a few minutes ago in, in that Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am, I will be what I will be, right? He is, he is um, self-defining, and if he defines himself as good, then he cannot at the same time be evil. I know, I mean, this can be a confusing exercise. There have been many people who have spent their lifetimes, you know, studying philosophy, like God and the problem of evil. And, you know, we, we can talk about those. That's, that's higher level than what we're, I was planning on dealing with today. But the boundaries that might be on God are only by his own nature and doing. Just by way of example, I had, I had um, some skeptic friends in high school who always were, like, trying to confront me about my faith and, one of the conundrums that they used to bring, and maybe you, you guys have heard about this before, it's like a classic paradox. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? The basic logic of it is meant to usurp the power of God, the almightiness of God, right? Like either God is too weak, like he, or he's not weak, but he's weak in his creative ability to make this rock, or he is weak in his power and not strong enough to lift said rock, right? It's this like paradox meant to poke holes in the power of God, but like it's I mean, in high school, I feel like I know a lot more than I knew in high school. You know, you're thinking about this, all right, how can I unpack this and break this down? But it's like totally a flawed argument. It's no different. If you are going to a friend to make a wager and you said, you know, flipping a coin, heads I win, tails you lose. Like, which friend is actually going to, unless they're completely naive, which friend is going to, like, let you, you know, follow through on that, on that wager? A lot of these paradoxes that people try to create are the same way. It's like they're, they're, they're it, it's a... Uh, Kobayashi? Is that what it's called? I don't know. Whatever that problem is in Star Trek. I'm not a Trekkie, but they have that thing that there's no way to, you know, it's, it's like you can't win the, the situation unless you cheat, which I guess is what William Shatner did. I don't know. Um, anyway, sorry, I digress. What about human free will? Here's one other element that might kind of potentially compromise the, the almightiness of God. Human free will. Are we able to make decisions that thwart the desire and goals of God? Do, do, does our existem, existence and that freedom that we have limit his almightiness? And this is one of these things we find time and time again in the Bible, right? God is able to work through and at times in spite of human decisions. 
Genesis 50. We read it a couple weeks ago if you're following on, on the Bible reading plan, right? Joseph is talking to his brothers. And, you know, these are the same brothers that a couple decades before, uh, likely, sold him into slavery. And he, he was in Egypt and he was mistreated and all that stuff. And he said, what does he say? He said to his brothers, he said, what you intended for evil, right? You weren't acting in line with what God would want you to do. But what you intended for evil, God used to bring about good and the deliverance of many people, including our family. God used that evil thing that you did. It wasn't his will per se, but he used it to accomplish what he was going to do in the end anyway, which is provide for the family. Right? Once again, God is so far above us that there is not a decision that we can make that will ultimately derail what he wants for the world. In some sense, that's comforting, right? Like, I can't, I can't, I, whatever I do, I can't screw up God's plan. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to err on the other side and just, you know, fall into determinism. Determinism is this belief that we're like mindless robots that every, you know, every step we take has been, you know, preordained by God. And, and so there's therefore no, you know, it's been scripted and there's no free will. Like, I believe that we do have a spontaneous independence as part of the way that God created us. But recognize this, right? Free will is something that God created. And so if free will is a creation of God, it is therefore subservient to him, and he is not constrained by it. God's almightiness is a reason that we can trust him. Understanding that the God who holds the stars in his hands knows us and loves us should give us great comfort in his ability to answer our prayers. We know that God is able. Last section before we wrap up. God is described as the creator of heaven and earth. And this is right from the first words of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Very clear point where to start. God made the universe and everything that we live in and live with. Now the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2, I would suggest, are not to tell us the method of creation. Right? They're not trying to tell us the how. It's not like reading your biology textbook, but it's intended to communicate the who of creation. In this church, we have folks who hold to a young earth belief, which is the belief that the earth was created 6,000 years ago in six literal days. We also have people in this church who hold to an old earth theory that God formed the world and the universe through intelligent design over a period of billions of years. I don't think... The creed forces us to cast our lot into one camp or the other. Right? The opening chapter of the Bible doesn't focus on how it came into being, but more who made it. The point of Genesis 1 and 2, I think, is as follows. It's like telling its audience, right? You've seen the sky. You've seen the stars. You've seen oceans and mountains. You've eaten mangoes. You've seen birds and fish and elephants and pandas. Who doesn't love pandas? You've studied the complexity of humans, how their whole code is wrapped up in DNA. You've studied the brain synapses that create a physiological reaction of sweaty palms and an increased heartbeat when they hold hands with their lover. Right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and it is God Almighty who has made all of that, who has created us. Everything that we study, made by God. The whole of creation. It's like looking at a beautiful canvas of art and being able to go and meet the artist. God is the artist. 
the creator of everything we see and experience. And I think that's what the creed means by he is creator of heaven and earth. All right, let's turn to application before we wrap up, or I guess to wrap up. I promise to try to provide some clear uh, take-homes for each of us each week. And a lot of what we talked about was very abstract. So let's try to make some of it concrete. First, let's start with God's love for us, right? We saw that God is our Father. And the manner of love that the Father has for Jesus Christ is the model of his love for those of us who have been adopted into his family, right? Remember, God loves you no less than he loves Jesus. Does that describe how you experience God's love for you? Too often we believe that God has saved us, that he's provided for our needs, but we remain like an orphan. We're going to talk about that idea in the fall when we, we get to the gospel-centered life. The idea that came to mind is kind of like how some of us feel about the government, right? Throw some help here and there to give food or to give shelter or a stimulus package, but by and large, ultimately, we're responsible for ourselves. You are not an orphan. You've been adopted into the family of the king and have the rights and privileges as such. So think about that for a moment. What do you need to do this week to better live into that reality? What do you need to do to recognize and trust in the love of God in your life? Right? Do you need to change some of those tapes that play constantly in your head? Right? Calling, you know, anytime you screw up, calling yourself a loser or a failure idiot. Maybe you need to take them and replace it with God calling you beloved, my child, the apple of my eye, all things he says in scripture. Right? I want to encourage us to focus on God's love for us this week. Replace any of that toxic thinking with the truth of the gospel. Now I will say this, this is an aside, I will say this, there are times in our life where we behave in manners that God doesn't want us to. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week when we, we say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. What does it mean that God is, Jesus is Lord over us? So there are ways that we ought to live differently. And there might be times when God communicates us to us, hey, I want you to live a little bit differently. Some of us call it our conscience, right? I think the Holy Spirit can work through our conscience to convict us of sin. We might experience some guilt. There are times when guilt can be healthy to reroute us back on the right direction. But I will say something that many of us experience that I do not believe is from God, but is from the enemy, is shame. The purpose of guilt is to try to rectify a wayward path. The process of shame is meant to kind of keep us on that wayward path and feel hopeless that there's no way off of it. So I just I want to communicate that real quickly as we think about those tapes in our mind. If at any point in time you are feeling because of decisions that you have made worthless, I can guarantee you if you are in Jesus Christ, that message is not from God. God will, does not call us worthless. He might redirect us. He might discipline us as he would a child or as a, as a parent would a child. Anyway, that's an aside. So if you've got some of that toxic thinking, replace it with the truth of the gospel. We've also seen that God is almighty, that he is the creator. And when we affirm the creed in faith, we can apply this to our lives, trusting in his provision for us. Philippians 4.19, Paul writes this. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 3 says a similar thing. To my God who is able to do infinitely more than you can think or imagine. God is able. Do we lean in on that? Do we trust him to supply our needs? Or do we need to control what happens to us by the sweat of our own brow? God is an almighty father. He is a father and loves us, but almighty he can follow through with that. So don't put the full burden of that on your own shoulders. All right, last piece of application that I want to focus on revolves around God as the creator. We see in Genesis 1 that we are made in the image of God. Distinct from all the... No other piece of creation is made in the image of God. We as human beings have the fingerprints of God all over us. And so God's desire for us, I believe, is to be a chip off the old block. God's power and goodness was displayed in his creation of the cosmos. And so I believe that when we create, we mimic God. We get to participate in the larger picture of what he is doing in bringing his kingdom into the world. Our faith should connect to our work. Another way you can say that is Sunday, what you experience at church should connect to Monday. Now, maybe you work Sunday, so Sunday could connect to Sunday, but you get the idea. What we do in church, in Bible study, in prayer, those spiritual things could, should pay dividends and be understood in how we carry ourselves in our work. Whether you are in the medical field or a teacher or a social worker, whether you are a construction worker or you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you're retired or you're a volunteer in the community, whatever you do, everything we do has the capacity to bring kingdom work, right? to bring echoes of heaven here to earth. And when we create and build things that are good, we reflect that God-given capacity in ourselves. We make God proud when we do that. I mean, think about like the parent of a fourth grader who's playing in that concert, playing the cello. They're making a whole lot of noise. But to that parent, it might as well be Yo-Yo Ma because they're proud of what they're doing. When we affirm this section of the creed, I believe that we see a father who loves us, one who is almighty and provides for us, and the creator of our world who invites us to join him in its recreation. May we take these truths this week and find ways to apply them into our lives. May we practice daily what it means to affirm that we believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Join me in prayer. Lord, you are our Father, you are Almighty, and you are the Creator. May we see how these three elements all interconnect with one another, and may we see the distinct ways in which we can lean into that. Leaning into your love as a father, leaning into your provision as almighty, that you are able to do whatever needs to be done to care for us. And that you are a creator, and you've invited us into the family business to participate in the restoration, the reconciliation of things that you are bringing here. That your will would be known here on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, as we see in Revelation, it will. Lord, we love you and we are grateful for all that you've done in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen.